This is an ABC podcast. No pay, no play. Should musicians across the country be guaranteed a minimum payment for gigs? Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for The Hack Podcast. We're diving into this one today because we know so many young artists are abandoning their performing dreams because they just can't afford it. You're going to hear from young musicians and music lovers about what the future is going to be for all this. How do we solve this massive problem? Also coming up, what's going to happen to young workers if a global recession hits hard? First, though. Hack. Former Liberal staffer Bruce Lehrman is on trial for the rape of his former colleague, Brittany Higgins. He denies any sexual activity took place in the office of Senator Linda Reynolds. On Triple J. Yeah, over the past couple of weeks, you might have been hearing news updates on the trial of Bruce Lehrman, the man accused of raping Brittany Higgins at Parliament House in 2019. Bruce Lehrman has pleaded not guilty... Almost 30 witnesses have been called to give evidence during this trial, including politicians and Brittany Higgins herself. Today, lawyers have given their closing statements, so I want to find out what has happened in court. And with us now is the ABC's Elizabeth Byrne, who's been covering this in court. Hey, Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Hi. Just take us back a bit. What's alleged to have happened here? Well, basically, this all started with a drinks evening among colleagues who worked uh, in the office of Senator Linda Reynolds, who'd just taken on uh, the portfolio of um, defence industries. And a lot of the people at those drinks were military people, and some of them were from the office. A lot of them were defence people um, and they were just basically having a bit of a get-together and two of the people there were of course Brittany Higgins and Bruce Lehrman uh, who were catching up with other people and eventually uh, late in the evening they went to another nightclub with a couple of the other people and then uh, Bruce Lehrman had offered to share an Uber with Miss Higgins uh, as they were on their way home and and it was in the same direction. Uh, But as we now know, they went to Parliament House where Bruce Lehrman is alleged to have sexually assaulted Ms Higgins, Um, although he says, of course, uh, that nothing happened, that there was no sexual contact at all. So, yes, sorry? So there's been quite a bit of evidence that's been heard over the past couple of weeks. Brittany Higgins gave evidence. What did she say? Well, uh, she maintained her story. Uh, she said that uh, it had been, you know, a bit of a frightening time. I think that the um, the main sort of uh, bit that we got out of her evidence to the court was that um, in the early days, she at first tried to pretend everything was okay, but in fact, and at one stage, um, and then she admitted that, of course, it wasn't, uh, and she looked across the courtroom at Bruce Lamb and and actually said to him, nothing was fine after what you did to me. Um, And then uh, she had told a number of people about what had happened. She even went to the police, and then an election was called, and she decided that to keep a job, she really needed to maybe not make a complaint at that point. So she put it on hold and it wasn't until 2021. So the original incident was in, alleged incident was 2019. Um, in 2021, she finally did um, uh, restart that police complaint, but not before she had given to media 
interviews which um, came to national attention and that's why we all know who Brittany Higgins is. So she explained that delay because she was trying to work out what to do and she was also caught in this swirl of, you know, politics and um, and it was all quite um, daunting and today the prosecutor actually said, you know, she was right to be frightened because people were trying, people had a deep political interest in what happened with her case. What about Bruce Lamb and Elizabeth Byrne? Did he testify in court? Uh, no, he didn't. And in fact, the defence case was very brief. They handed up some text messages and that was it. Um but we have, we do know what he says about it because the prosecution, of course, played uh, the police interview that he did when he he denied that anything had happened several times during that interview. He told the police he'd gone back to Parliament House to get his keys, um, that uh, um, and that uh, nothing, you know, nothing had happened in that office. That he'd done a little bit of work, um, and then he just left because he thought that. Brittany Higgins was doing work of her own in another office and uh, he, you know, didn't think that he was there to look after her at all. So um, we heard that interview sort of last week um, and it was at a time when we couldn't really report anything because after the first week and when Brittany Higgins was still in cross-examination, she didn't come back for a few days because she was unavailable for court and we weren't able to report anything until she'd finished her evidence. So we had to sort of hold on to this for a while. But it was a very interesting interview because he was very calm and measured and it was only towards the end of the interview when they said to him, how did you feel when you found out and how did you find out, that he started to become a bit emotional and said that you know he was really, really shocked and it was a very, very hard fought. Um, but that he had been getting help with that and uh, and and he'd had some legal advice as well. I saw there was a lot of talk yesterday about Senator Linda Reynolds' evidence, Senator Linda Reynolds, Brittany Higgins' former boss. What was all that about? Yes, uh, that was... That was very interesting evidence indeed. So, of course, the pair of them worked for Senator Linda Reynolds when she um, had just taken over the Defence Industries portfolio. Um, And uh, she had quite a bit to do with the situation at the start when Brittany Higgins first sort of said, you know, this is this is what happened to me and she actually advised her to go to police and yesterday she told us that she'd asked the police how, how should I handle this situation and the police had said to her that they should follow Brittany Higgins' lead um, but what she wanted to do is what they should support her to do. Uh, but in the middle of all this, um, the prosecution asked her if she had sent a text message to the defence lawyers asking for transcripts of, of Brittany Higgins' evidence two hours into the uh, cross-examination of Brittany Higgins the week before, um, and of course this is a this is a no-no, David. <laughs> right. Okay. So this is like not the the normal practice when someone's giving no. evidence. You don't usually have no. another course, person. That's right, and it got worse. She sent a second text message offering advice saying if they looked at the text messages between Brittany Higgins and another person who'd worked in that office, they might 
you know, find something they could use. So she was, it was like the prosecution said she was offering cross-examination tips to the defence. And then it got even worse when it emerged that um, her partner had been sitting in the trial in the public gallery for the entirety. Uh, but she said that once her lawyer had explained to her that, you know, it wasn't appropriate that she knew about the trial before she gave her evidence that she didn't discuss it with him. And so, so that was... So what happens now, Elizabeth Byrne, like that? We've heard all of this evidence. We've heard some closing statements today. What What's the next step? Well, the defence hasn't quite finished its closing statements uh, and that will go on a little while tomorrow. Then the judge will have to address the jury. She'll sum up the case but more briefly and um, give each side's point of view. Um, and then explain the law to the jury and then they'll retire to decide that sort of over to them then they they have time to decide whether they think uh, this incident happened or not. Um, and I guess uh, the fate of Bruce Lehrman will then be in their hands. Right. Well, we'll definitely be hearing a lot more about it in the days and weeks ahead. We appreciate you bringing us up to speed. ABC Court reporter Elizabeth Byrne, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. Hack. Neither venues nor musicians, no one's getting rich here right now, you know. It's like we're just all trying to exist. On Triple J. You know, it's impossible to stress just how much of an impact music has on our lives. Now gigs are back, we're diving back in. Everything from tiny gigs at the pub to huge music festivals are back on. If you're at one of those smaller local venues watching someone or some people perform, it's worth asking yourself how much that musician entertaining you is getting paid because the answer is probably very little and it could even be nothing at all. In some cases, they're paying to perform. And it means so many artists are having to give up the work they love because they just can't afford it. We're hearing these stories all the time. So what if there was a minimum fee for musicians, an amount that they had to be paid? Because that's an idea that's kicking around at the moment as the federal government looks at how it can fund the arts. And as you can imagine, heaps of musos, really keen. A lot of venue owners, though, say they can't afford it. I'm keen to hear what you think about this, especially if you are a musician. How is it? How hard is it, sorry, for you to get by on what you earn for performing? You can message in 0439 First, though, here's Joe Lauder with more. It's very difficult to... Focus on your artistic practice when you're worried about where your next, like, rent check is going to come from. I'm chatting with Eilish Gilligan about what it's like being an Australian musician at the moment. Eilish says for her and for most of the musicians that she knows, it involves a lot of juggling and financial insecurity. Most of my friends are working several jobs, either within the music industry or outside of it, to kind of make ends meet. But... All those income streams don't leave very much space for your artistic practice. There's been a lot of talk in the music industry in the last few weeks about how much money musicians are getting paid when they do live gigs. It's obviously a huge spectrum depending on how big the artist is and the size of the venue they're playing at and stuff like that. But it might surprise you how little musicians walk away with at the end of the night. When I was starting out with my solo project, I would pay to do shows because I would have like a session musician that I would need to pay. Um, so if my session musician costs $300, $400 a show um, and the venue is paying me like, let's say they pay 250 bucks, I'm paying for the sound person 
and it ends up costing me money to do a show rather than getting paid to do a show. The reason this whole discussion is kicked off is because the federal government is currently doing a national cultural policy review and have been getting submissions about how the arts is funded in this country. As part of it, the Musicians' Union of Australia has put forward a proposal to have a minimum rate for every musician to get paid for live gigs. They did a survey in 2018 and found that a quarter of musicians' performances are unpaid and the average income is $55,000. They reckon every musician, so every member of a band, should get a minimum of $250 per gig. I think it's a great idea. Everybody deserves to be paid minimum wage. I do understand where smaller venues are coming from when they say, I don't know if we can afford this. Yeah, that's the thing. In response to this proposal, the owner of the iconic Melbourne pub and music venue, The Tote, wrote a submission covering a lot of issues, but he also said that introducing a minimum pay would affect venues like his. So uh, I'm John Perring. We're sitting in the front bar of The Tote Hotel and I'm uh, one of the co-owners. The Tote puts on a lot of free gigs every week. They have three spaces, two paid band rooms, and they also put on some free gigs in the front bar. Probably in Melbourne we, we do more gigs than pretty much anyone else, uh, and quite possibly in Australia. John's come under fire because of a newspaper article of him saying that introducing this minimum payment for every person performing at a gig would make a lot of gigs totally unviable. He says especially when the bands are starting out and aren't yet pulling a big audience. Only the established acts would be the ones who were, who were sort of playing in live music venues, and, and venues with smaller capacities just would become unviable and then would become straight-out hospitality-style businesses. He believes that if it was introduced, the government would have to fund it. That's right, that's right. We, you know, we're not in a position to be able to underwrite shows like that. Um, and so s s there, someone else would have to step in to do that. Some people, you know, in the comments from your article were like, well, your business benefits by, you know, you have musicians and then they bring people in and then they buy lots of drinks, say, at the bar and that benefits your business and so that's benefiting from these musicians. What do you say to that? Well, you know, of course, that's, that's exactly what venues do. But, you know, neither venues nor musicians, no-one's getting rich here right now, you know. It's like we're just all trying to exist. Um, and we're trying to transition to a place where, you know, where there are better days. And we're not there yet. John says it's also about how much punters, so me and you, are willing to pay to go to a gig. It's something Dr Sam Whiting agrees with. We need to have a discussion about the value of music and of live music, how much audiences are actually willing to pay, um, and the value of musicians as cultural workers. I'm Dr. Sam Whiting, and I'm a lecturer in creative industries at the University of South Australia. I also did my PhD on small live music venues. Dr. Whiting supports the idea of a minimum gig fee for musicians. I think a minimum rate for musicians is kind of the rising tide that would lift all boats. But he understands that this can't just happen overnight without initial funding support, or else there would be a lot of flow on impacts with stuff like ticket prices and how venues will go financially. And Sam says there are some interesting examples overseas of how to go about funding musicians and the arts that we could explore here in Australia. Ireland has just started a trial where they give 2,000 artists a basic income of around 500 Australian dollars every week over three years. Artists want to create. They want to do stuff. They want to make. They're not going to just sit around if you subsidise them. They're going to 
take that opportunity. All the research shows that basic income, people use it productively. Everyone I spoke to for this story said it's really important that we're talking about this and looking at the problem with the music industry. Melbourne musician Eilish Gilligan again. Venues need help and musicians need help and the whole industry needs help. (laughs) Hack Triple J. Joe Lauder with that story and we should say we did ask Arts Minister Tony Burke to come on to chat about this but he wasn't available. Some messages coming through. Chris in Awabakal Country says, would a minimum charge for musos mean that venues would be less likely to try new acts? That's an interesting point. Another person says, absolutely, bands should be paid for their time. Jackie in Paris says, I hate the idea that working in music or the arts will only be accessible to people with enough wealth to do unpaid or pay-to-perform gigs. I want to talk to, you know, a musician now, solo artist Chella's on the line. Hey, Chella, what's your view on all this? Do you reckon that there should be some minimum payment for artists? Absolutely. I think that we have been trying to adapt to an extremely fast-paced change where, you know, maybe 20 years ago we made uh, the majority of our income from record sales and that's all flipped on us and we've been trying to come up with new ways to survive and um, I think that, you know, coming up with innovative ways to try and make money such as selling merchandise or, you know, like there's only so much we can do and this has been a problem for such a long time and something definitely needs to change. There's definitely, sorry, go go on. Oh, no, I I think that, you know, even five years ago I was offered $350 to support a headline act around Australia and I couldn't afford to do that. And I think that that's still somehow the standard rate that you get offered as a support act, um, which just doesn't, you can't even pay for half of the tour. So yeah, things need to change for sure. Yeah, no, nah, Cello, we've got so many people who are backing you up saying, you know, once they pay for their own costs, often they've got nothing left for themselves. Really appreciate you calling in. Um, I want to chat to somebody else now who might be able to offer a bit more insight. We've got Paul Davies from Musicians Australia, which is a union representing musicians. Hey, Paul, thanks for joining us on Hack. Yeah, no, pleased to be here. So you guys have been campaigning hard for this $250 minimum fee for gigs. Is there anywhere in Australia that's on board with this at the moment? Oh, well, yes. Um, look, it's a it's a really important campaign and it's great to hear your reporting on it, so thanks. All of the states, apart from New South Wales and Victoria, uh, no, New South Wales and Tasmania, so Victoria's included in this, have signed on to it by way of, you know, money coming into the industry to recover from COVID. This is public money. They've signed on to the principle that public money has to be spent when it's spent in this industry on a minimum fee for musicians. You know, if you put on a gig and musicians are involved and public money is being used to do that, there has to be a minimum fee. And I'm pleased to say that all states apart from New South Wales and Tasmania have signed on. We're hopeful that those two states will also get with it as well. So what about... So at, at the moment, it's, it's making progress. So yeah. what about the venues, though, as we've just heard, who say they can't afford this and this could lead to less opportunities for musicians to perform? Yeah. Well, it's a staged process, right? So at the moment, it's public money. So there's no, no skin off their nose because they're getting funded to do it. Now, of course, when you set a minimum fee, as we have done with our members who endorse this overwhelmingly, and they did it for all of the reasons you've indicated in the in the package leading up to the, you know, just earlier, you know, not getting paid at all, 
the average income of musicians from all of their jobs were around 55k or something. Um, very stressful. I mean, of course, they did it incredibly tough during COVID. So we, in, our members, endorsed this claim um, almost unanimously. It was a huge turnout to endorse the 250. When they did that, it was actually establishing a benchmark for the industry. Now, how do commercial venues meet it when there's no um, public funds available? Well, let's sit down and talk about it. That's what we need to do. We don't run the music businesses. We mm. represent our members of the musicians who put on the shows, who log in here, rehearse and make, make the entertainment happen. Yeah. We need industry to sit down with us and tell us, well, what's the business model you operate by? We, we're here to listen. We're, you know, we're, we're adults. We're able to digest um, and work through those issues. We just need them to come to the table so we can sort that out. Paul Davies from Musicians Australia. Just stay with us. I want to go to another caller. Rob's on the line. Hey, Rob, you're a gigging musician. What's your thoughts on all of this? Hey, guys. Um, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, so my thoughts on it are that the things really contributing to the problem, I think, are um, lack of transparency and lack of support for both sides. So musicians like myself are often put in positions where we have to take uh, the word from the venue that they can't afford to pay us. And we have no proof of it, which makes it a little bit of a hard pill to swallow. But then I know for a fact, because I actually work as a sound guy at another venue, that is absolutely 100% the case sometimes. So I think it'd be great if there was public money available to help the venues that can prove they're doing the right thing to try and support musicians. And I think that musicians would feel very supported if there was something that they knew that they were guaranteed. Because most of us, I think, do actually have maybe a side hustle or a day job that keeps us afloat. And we just keep putting our gig money, if it exists, back into a kitty to then do something, make the next big move. Yeah, so, fair, fair enough, Rob. There's some you know, really good points there. I'm sure there's a lot of people that agree with you. Thank you very much for calling in. Some more messages. Someone says, having to sell tickets to friends and family for every small gig is disheartening. Then taking a minimum cut and paying for lights and sound. I mean, there's little left, and after a few shows, you're out of people to sell tickets to. It's created an environment where only the friendly and already popular flourish and the rest languish. I want to go back to Paul Davies from Musicians Australia. Paul, what does this mean for the local sort of sector? Like, are we seeing a big exodus of talent because it's easier to make it overseas than it is in Australia? Yeah, well, the real stresses at the moment have to do with you know, COVID recovery, things haven't come back. We know businesses are doing it tough. But, uh, but the real, the problem we face is that when we our members are out trying to find gigs at, at right now, um, the, there's no promotional budget. Uh, the risk is shifted down, right? The risk is shifted onto the shoulders of musicians. So um, we'll, we're in, our aim is to develop a plan for the industry. Right? We need an industry that supports musicians because without musicians, there's no music industry. But So we have to start from a bottom line. Yeah. That's why the 250 is important. We can't walk away from that. But we're absolutely realistic that we need something that suits the industry as a whole. It's a commercial operation. At the moment, it's not good. But musicians are bearing the brunt of this problem disproportionately. I mean, musicians are just regular people, right, who are trying to make a living they're not businesses that um, have audiences that they can call on to buy drinks and get money that way. They're yeah. just musicians. Yeah. They need to be treated as workers, and they are. 
Well, and we we're are, saying we and, and we yeah. are hearing that now, Paul Davies. So many of those musicians are getting in touch with their stories. Look, we do appreciate your time, Paul Davies, from Musicians Australia. George, on the text line, I fully support musicians being paid at gigs. Two fifty minimum is very reasonable to ask. The government needs to act and support this. Time to move on. Hack. I was in tears explaining how much this work stress had really affected me mentally and physically. On Triple J. You know, since we're talking about work, there's some other worrying predictions for young workers in general. You'll probably know that there's a big freakout happening right now about a potential global recession and the impact that that could have on Australia. Well, it turns out that two groups in particular are most at risk of losing their jobs if the worst happens. As you can probably guess, it's not great news for young people. I want to find out more. Jessica Wang's been looking into this. She's a journalist at news.com and she's with us now. Hey, Jess, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Hi, thank you for having me. So what's the go with this? If Australia's economy does take a beating in the months ahead, whose jobs are most at risk? Yeah, I mean, looking at things historically, we know that sort of workers under the age of 24, um, uh, their jobs are generally most at risk um, and that's because they sort of have less training, they're less skilled. Um, And then the other segment um, is uh, people with sort of casual employment, um, sort of freelancers, people on contractual jobs, um, that kind of thing, just because they don't have sort of um, a full-time contract to sort of keep them in there, um, keep them employed. They're just a bit more expendable to companies and organisations. Do we know how many Australians are working more than one job at the moment who are in perhaps insecure work? Because it is a big issue. Is it affecting a huge proportion of the population? Yeah, um, well... We don't have the exact details on how many people are sort of in sort of insecure work. So that's sort of like the freelancer contractual jobs. But we do know that there's been a huge increase in people who work, um, Australians who work two jobs. Um, So according to the latest September stats from the ABS, we know that that numbers, um, so around 900,000 Australians are sort of working multiple jobs. Um, That number doesn't seem like a lot, but that sort of increased from um, 2.3%. 2% roughly to 6.5% in the span of three months, which is like a huge increase when you think like exponentially. A lot more people are looking for sort of um, more work in terms of like work that's not just that full-time job. Um, and whether that's because there's just more jobs around or because they sort of need the money for um, to survive, um, we don't know that, but we do know that pool has increased. We know as well like the culture and attitudes towards work has changed a little bit in the last few years, like since COVID, we had like the great resignation. People would have heard a lot about that overseas and here in Australia. That's definitely had an impact, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think um, looking at things like sort of freelancing um, and the gig economy, um, that sort of um, sort of the work culture that's changed um, with the great resignation, but also um, post pandemic. So things like working from home, remote working, flexible working, um, things that sort of mean that there is more work-life balance. Um, Those elements have sort of driven more um, freelancers to sort of enter um, sort of the work um, field. So people sort of um, sort of ditching their free, uh, full-time jobs and going to freelance work. Um, when you sort of look at what could happen in the case of an economic downturn, I spoke to a career coach who was like, you do need to sort of be aware that um, that it's great when there's lots of work around. Um, but I guess freelancer budgets are one of the first to get cut um, sort of when companies are looking to downsize. 
Um, and that's mainly just because, like I said before, they're not protected by a contract and they're more difficult to sort of, I guess, um, to cut compared to um, a full-time permanent employee or a part-time permanent employee. Yeah, really interesting stuff. It's, uh, you know, great that you've been looking into it because it potentially could affect a lot of people, a lot of young Australians who could be caught up with all of this. Journalist Jessica Wang, thank you so much for speaking with us on Hack. Thanks so much for having me. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.